You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. say every good hero needs a theme song that's my theme song this is the x-man i am your x-man doc coil thanks for tuning in downloading listening on soundcloud wherever you you check out podcasts i i I really do appreciate it you know i've had some people come up to me on the streets no i'm I'm just kidding i don't i don't hang out in the streets anymore i mean in uh upstanding venues and establishments of the law greater los angeles area People reached out to me and said they've been enjoying the show, um, which is awesome. Our last episode with uh, my buddy Jay Andrews Zalucky got a really great response, which was cool because, you know, I was worried maybe not having some name guy from a band or something. Maybe uh, an episode like that wouldn't wouldn't resonate, but it did. Uh, it showed that you guys actually are kind of interested in examining some subject matter, talking to people with a little more educational background and knowledge. So that informs me. It's, it's good to hear. So maybe I'll kind of do some episodes that are a little more topic based, but, um, no, I'm doing, I'm doing good. I'm busy as all hell. I have too many things going on. Uh, there's definitely not enough time in the day, but, um, you know, I'm trying to fit these, fit these shows in and get them out as often as possible. It's not always easy, to be honest. But um, yeah, we have a great, great, great show for you. Uh, Mr. Mark Hunter, the ex-singer from the band Chimera, will be coming on a little bit later in the show. But before that, we're going to get into a little bit of business. Uh, if you guys want to support the X-Man show, I have a very easy way for you to do that. Everyone uses Amazon.com. So if you want to support this show, you can go to my personal portal to Amazon and purchase what you would normally do otherwise, it would be www.coil.net backslash Amazon or go to .coil.net and just tap on the Amazon button and just order like you would normally would. That will help the show. I would appreciate it. We also too, uh, we're looking for other sponsors, bands. If you want to play a song, we've, we've done that a bunch of times and actually displayed some amazing talent out there. So yeah, hit me up on social media. You can find me at Doc Coyle, D-O-C-C-O-Y-L-E on Twitter, Instagram. You can find me on the Facebooks. I'm everywhere, you know, just all up in your feed talking shit. And I should also just give you a reminder to please go over to iTunes and leave a comment and a rating. It matters so much for the show. That stuff kind of slowed down for a little bit. I don't like that. All right. If I see you in person and you tell me how good the show is and you didn't give me an iTunes comment, I'm going to punch you square in the chest and then maybe take some money out your wallet. I mean, I mean, I'm not going to do I'm not going to do that. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? I'll give you a stern look, you know, maybe give you one of them greasy 
overly strong Donald Trump handshakes and make it real uncomfortable and maybe do a little close talking, breathe on your face or maybe spit while I talk on your eye and maybe look at your girlfriend a little too long, you know, and just make it uncomfortable for everyone. You see, guys, see what happens when there's no comments? I don't know what to do with myself. Anyway, before we get into our discussion with my old friend, Mark Hunter, I actually want to play a song. So, your man, Doc Coyle, the X-Man, I co-wrote a song on the new Body Count album. Yes, the Body Count with the man, the legend, Ice-T. This is crazy for me. You know, being a musician, being someone who lives in America and has had someone like Ice-T be kind of part of your life, um, you know, just it's just like a figure there. You know, New Jack City, that's that's all time for me. You know what I'm saying? I want to shoot you so bad, my dick is hard. All right? That's from, that's from New Jack City. If you ain't seen New Jack City, I can't help you. But anyway, and then Body Count being... A, a black heavy metal band and god forbid that kind of being our p- big part of our identity as well you feel kind of connected to those musicians they really opened up a lot of doors for us um so so yeah so uh, i had someone on twitter ask i believe it was mr gene snodgrass a friend on twitter asked how that came about so essentially i was approached by Mr. Mike Gitter from Central Media Records, who was a guest on this show. And they were looking for some help, you know, some submissions on tracks. And so essentially what I did was I, at home, I I listened to the first Body Count record, and then I listened to the most recent Body Count record. And then I, and I tried to write something that was kind of somewhere in the middle between that kind of bridge the uh, the old and the new. And so I, I wrote an entire track uh, instrumentally, sent it to them, and had no idea what was going to happen. And then eventually, you know, maybe three or four months later, I got an email, and there was the song. And if you were to kind of A-B what I originally sent them and then what kind of made it to the final cut, it's really interesting because they kind of – I wrote a whole – very like hardcore style, chunky, th- almost thrashy kind of bridge. And they took all that out and they kind of just used my main guitar melody and then what ultimately became the chorus heavy machine gun riff, uh, which is, by the way, I haven't even mentioned the song. The song is called uh, This Is Why We Ride. And it's track three on the new body count record entitled Bloodlust. And that actually came out this past Friday, March 31st. So I'm gonna play the song, but I hope you guys really like it. Um, It's pretty insane to sit in your room and write some riffs and some parts. And the next thing you know, Ice-T is dropping verses on them. That's pretty dope. So I wanna thank them, I wanna thank everyone uh, in the band Body Count. Uh, I want to thank Ice-T, who personally reached out to me on Twitter when uh, the the all the kind of hype started building up. That was re- That's pretty amazing. I'm still kind of blown away by that. And I definitely want to thank Mike Gitter at Century Media for having me involved. So I'm going to play this song. This It's called This Is Why We Ride. Enjoy it. And right after that, our interview with Mark Hunter from the band Chimera. The ex-singer from the band Chimera will be coming right after that. Check it out. 
People always want to know the reason for what they consider senseless violence in the hood. I'ma break it down for you. This is why we rise.
want it now I gotta be honest with you If somebody were to kill me, shoot me right now My last words wouldn't be peace It'd be get those motherfuckers This song is dedicated to all of you who have lost somebody to street violence. X-Man show. Oh yeah. Welcome to the X-Man Club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's been it's 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 been a while now. Um I you know I I had the fortune of a of seeing you twice. Like I saw you in Denver and I saw you in LA like maybe a week yeah. a week before the band uh broke up. So it was obviously a, a super left field. Like I thought you guys were seemed like you guys were doing great um, before that happened. At least the show, and I saw a show in Philly. I think not too long, and it was like at the TLA. It was like a Tuesday. It was fucking packed. I'm like, man, these guys are doing great. So, um, you know, I you know, I don't I don't have the perspective that that you have of what was going on day to day. So it definitely came as a as a big surprise to me. It came as a surprise to me of course the initial blow you can't just be like oh i was expecting that to happen but uh just from my perspective walking into the last tour you could sense that that honeymoon vibe was over as as they say and the the tour itself um some nights were hit or miss and some nights that were missed were were pretty miss and pretty pretty hard to deal with you could feel the tension uh, yeah, and I think that I mean just to be completely candid, like no one was making any money on that tour. That last one was really bad with the finances. And our so when Chimera 1.0 ends and 2.0 starts, the name didn't retain the same type of marquee value. Yeah. Not to mention metal in itself concerts were in this time period maybe 2013 14 still kind of hit or miss with promoters taking a chance so not many of them were as willing to take a chance on this new version uh financially so our guarantees dropped radically and just made things much harder i mean the last tour i mean you know in our heyday of course we're, we're rolling in some sweet buses with a crew on the last day, I'm driving the bandwagon eight or nine hours and then getting off and playing a show with like one crew guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so I... it's it was definitely a, a hit. And that just sort of thing wears on you. It wears on the spirits. It wears on the friendships. Um, 
you know, who knows what else could be thrown into the mix. But uh, I, I was grateful it ended because honestly, it was just like, it felt like it was dying a slow death and it was something I couldn't escape from by that point. Yeah. I right, listen, but, I, uh, I, I, I can, some of the shows were great, you know, when, right. I figured you could, but like, again, like when you see, see us on a good night, yeah, it's because the show might be packed and, you know, the band's playing well and we never had a bad time playing, you know, we always played, performed pretty well together, but, uh, just some of those shows, man, when you're like, it's just out of gas, you know, that's what we, that yeah. was our term for it. Like someone called the BP truck, this show's out of gas. Well, I mean, I, one thing I could say about that tour lineup, I don't think that did you any favors. I think you guys are basically pulling all the weight. And there wasn't um, not no no disrespect to the bands that were on the show, sure, but they yeah. were but they were definitely younger, more developing bands. And when you get, you know, three or four bands kind of in that similar boat, you know, as opposed to having a tier where you have like, all right, we have one kind of newbie band, then one kind of mid-level building band and then a true main support or like a co-bill and you you know and that's you know listen the biggest bands get the biggest bands to support them you know and and when you when the band starts struggling because i know we went through this then all of a sudden you can't put together the type of headline package that you want to because maybe your band has fallen off a little bit so then now those bands don't want to open up for you and then all of a sudden, now you're in this situation where it's like, all right, well, we got to go on tour, but you know, maybe we're going to have a lineup that's that's not as uh, you know as solid as we'd like. So I definitely understand that. Yeah, that's a great perspective. I also uh, think that there's a little bit to do with um, man. I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> Shit, I hate when that happens. It's all good. The uh, yeah, you you mentioned that it. The line of suffering because of of the bands falling off, but there's also, oh sorry, um, man, I lost it. Oh, sorry. Right. Well, you know what? Die. No, here's here's what we're going to do. Um, <laughs> actually, no, I feel like we actually got a little ahead of ourselves because I actually wanted to kind of go back um, to kind of come the, the beginning. Well, I want to go back to the beginning of of the band, and you know, one one of the great things about this show is getting to talk to people like you guys I've known for a really long time. Um, so the first, I, you know, and I love like kind of, you know, even me remembering like, oh, I remember that. Like, so the first time I ever saw you guys was actually at New England Metal Fest. I believe it was. Stop. I remember it. Sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. Oh, I remember it. it going back I knew around. it would happen. And this is because you, it is because of what you just said right there. On your previous podcast with the New England, or New England, the New Wave of American Heavy Metal podcast that I just listened to, you mentioned that God forbid had a hard time finding its place within a scene because we, uh, you guys, and just like us, we we reached some pretty far horizons in terms of bands and genres we would combine with. Like one tour we might go out with Hatebreed, or one tour we might go out with Danzig. Uh, another fear factory might play a show with Soulfly. We were very spread out, but but uh, also didn't feel like we fit in a lot of times. Like right when we come out with Lamb of God, it's like why is this new metal band here with Lamb of God? And right the first time we toured with them, so we kind of because we went from kind of that new metalish sound in the beginning and and then into this newer style that we were more or less known for throughout. Um, kind of just 
didn't fit in always. And, and I felt that that had a little bit to do with putting our packages together. It was like, well, who's quote unquote smaller than us? And it's usually just baby bands or, um, and then again, like you said, like a package. And if you want the package to be good, it's like, oh, well, it's going to be a co-headliner because yeah. this band is technically the same size as you. So I like co-headliners, man. I, I, yeah, I, there's no problem with it, but it, it, it never really felt like we ever took, we, we were like the world's greatest opening act. It was like you put us in front of another band, we would, you know, do really well and bring in a lot of fans. But we go out and headline, it's like, where is everybody? Yeah. Well, not, I, all, not always. No, I listen. I've I've seen you guys. Yeah. We toured you guys headlining, and you guys would kill it. You know, I mean, you know, I know definitely overseas. You guys, you know, had some really great tours as a as a, as a headliner. Um, you know, and I saw some of that stuff uh, up up close. It's it's tough though, man. You know, um, but but no, I'm gonna. Despite what you said, I'm gonna go back to the beginning. I got I got okay, some questions. Back to the beginning. Doc Cole's got some really questions. Lost that thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, so. No, so but I wanted to I wanted to like tell a story about when I first saw you guys. So I saw you guys at uh, New England Metal Fest, and I believe the year was two thousand. All right, yeah. so this is so this is I didn't know didn't know you guys, um, and we played at that year. They had a third stage, so I think we played the third stage. It was literally in a venue around the corner from the Palladium. So this is the Worcester Palladium, that. and so we played the third stage. Killswitch played the third stage, and I think and Hatebreed was going to do a, a secret show on the third stage and then it got moved and they played the second stage and ended up getting a, in, into a fist fight on stage yeah. with anal cunt. But I remember right. seeing, seeing you guys and being like, Oh man, this is like kind of new metal, but it was so heavy. Like, but it, like it sounded like a band that would be in our scene. Like it was like, so I like, like even though you guys were, I guess, view that as being this this new metal band or coming out of that scene to me it still sounded like a new metal slash metal core or like the at least the scene we were coming from hybrid like it wasn't just a straight new metal band like you could tell that you guys were listening to the hate breeds of the world and you know the really heavier bands that it was it was filtering in and death metal stuff you could hear in there and um you know so so that was so that was kind of crazy. It's like, damn, this is a really, and I, mean, I remember people were really feeling it. I was like, damn, this band's really, really, really cool. And then somehow we got in touch and we were talking online and then you came to see us on our first tour ever. In, uh, yeah, when we All played, Out War. Yeah. The, you could, uh, I mean, uh, The Flying Machine. Yep. And with uh, Shadows Fall and All Out War. And then we, we hung out um, and then kind of stayed in touch. That's how it was for a while. I feel like we would like get in touch with like, like-minded bands and just be homies. And then eventually all of us started kind of things started starting happen, happening for us. But so you guys got, um, you know, was it was it the farm club thing that actually got the label interest and all that stuff for you guys? Or that was that yes, already going yeah, on? That, that was something that sort of uh, put it kind of assured we would get signed. I think we had a little bit of label interest um, when we released our EP. It did well on WSOU and mm -hmm. it did well on the internet. And this was kind of in the era of bloggers are starting to become a thing and reviews online were starting to become a thing. So all of uh, those were positive and like kind of hyped us up, probably overhyped us. Um, and it definitely filled labels' expectations pretty high. So, but when we hit Farm Club, 
um, the goal was to bring Roadrunner out to that because they were already kind of looking at us. Yeah. So when we went to film, it would have been really easy. Um, the other guy that was looking at us was his name was Kevin Estrada. It would have been very easy for Kevin to come out because he was in the LA office. He didn't make it that night, but just the fact that we were kind of on that, it was like, man, these guys are doing some pretty cool things. We should probably take it seriously. And then when we went out on tour with Spine Shank, that's when we started seeing like offers come in. So which that, was you, like, so you got on a tour with Spine Shank when you were unsigned. Yeah, and the, the 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 funny way that that happened was we had the same manager and they were playing Toledo and Cleveland. So, of course, we would be a good asset to those shows. And with the same management, it makes sense. So uh, just playing that first time, we kind of felt that we had this kinship with Spineshank because we came from the same farm, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, I just flat out asked the guitarist, Mikey, I'm like, hey, can we follow you around and do the rest of this tour with you? So they had about two, two and a half, three weeks of dates left. So you weren't even on the tour. You just jumped on. Literally jumped on and jumped in in cars. And we did it in like a, uh, a four, four guys or four, maybe even five, rode in a Ford Taurus. <laughs> that's and when that's when we played um, the, those shows, it was like Boiler Room was on the tour, Nonpoint. It was a it Was, was a Rob Congiano in Boiler Room? Yes, he was. Wow. And um, so we kind of just jumped on. Mikey was like, yeah, fuck it. Come on in. You know, join. If you've ever met Mike Sarkeesian from Spineshank, you just know he's a really easygoing, fun guy. He likes to have fun. And uh, (laughs) he was just like, yeah, come on. You know, I think he he felt he had the balls. His band was doing really well, and they kind of could call any kind of shots they wanted. I feel like that's that's only something that could have happened then. Like I feel like now Perhaps, if you did yeah. that, like they like everything's so like everything's like Live Nation and it's like very right. reg- regimented and very like there's contracts. There's this band isn't on the contract. We have a local bit like I feel like people would flip out if you did something like that today. It kind of helped because we did have an eight we'd like just signed up with a booking agent. We were only gonna get paid fifty bucks a night. It wasn't really like you know, we asked for like 50 bucks and some beer and towels or water and towels, whatever it would have been. But a lot of promoters were really cool. They were like, man, this, this band's bringing in a lot of people. Like they could tell, even though we were opening the show that we had fans there and we're making fans. So they, a lot of them treated us like really cool. Like make sure we got a rider and shit like that. That's awesome, man. So, but yeah, that when, once that happened, that tour, like Nonpoint was signed to MCA and they started like telling their label reps, like there was a lot going on with us. And then the Roadrunner kind of caught wind that now more labels were interested in us and, and it became a sort of a mini bidding war. Yeah. So now correct me if my, if I'm wrong, but from what I, you know, little I've heard from you guys talk and maybe some people in the industry, you guys kind of got one of the last big, you know, kind of major label, deals you know like you know I, and I i would i guess i would characterize it as something that really the last wave of kind of the the new metal bands that were getting big, bigger deals or even like bands that were kind of almost in that that radio rock realm you know the you know the alien ant farms of the world and and things like that where you could come in and get a you know 
uh, six, seven figure deal out the gate. Um, like another band, uh, like 40 Below Summer was a band that got a pretty big deal out the gate. And I think El Nino got a pretty big deal out the gate. And those things are essentially non-existent anymore. Um, would I, would I be wrong in characterizing your guys deal like that? No, we, we, de- we definitely got a quote unquote major label deal yeah. from Roadrunner. They offered us initially, um, a more or less a baby band deal, which is kind of their standard practice. But, uh, because of the bidding war stuff going on, we were able to kind of put the chips towards our side. Now, now, because of that, were there just the expectations like super high? Yeah, they were through the roof, yeah. But the thing that sucked was, I mean, we had a couple of things going against us. They also sold their company. Um, the, they sold their company as like our record was scheduled and slated to come out. With the Warner deal? So, um, or this? I believe it was Island. Island, oh yeah, time. no. Did they sell it or was it like a merger? Was a something? merger. Yeah, yeah that's what it was. All this was going on. The merger was going on, and that delayed our album. Our album had leaked. We were kind of touring way too early, spending a lot of money. Then the album leaked, and people didn't really like it. Um, so we kind of had quite a few things against us. So we spent a lot of money up front and weren't able to make the re- the kind of return they needed. And we were subsequently kind of left to do our thing uh, once we kind of did our initial touring. We got some big tours right off the gate, like with Slayer and and uh, whatnot. But after that, we it was really hard-pressed for us to get tour support. We weren't able to go to Europe on our first album because we just kind of blew through everything. So, um, so there were these outward expectations, but what about like within the band? Like were you guys, oh, did you guys yeah, feel yeah. like, man, we're going to be the next Mudvayne? Yeah, yeah, of course. We definitely had high expectations, high aspirations, um, and we definitely felt what it feels like to have those fall flat on your face, fall flat on your face trying to achieve them and not get them. Do you think those uh, expectations we think were that. like not? Were you, do you feel like you were kind of being full of yourselves, or was it wasn't accurate to what to the reality? Like, like, did you guys feel like that? Like, you know. Because I, I, because I, the thing is, I remember when we first like started doing shows with you guys, and I remembered just how organized you guys were, and that it seemed like you guys thought about your band like a business. Where and like <laughs> I remember us, we were like everything that happened on a professional level where the band moved forward almost was like an accident. Whereas like you guys was like, yes, we're. Like, like I said, this is not because you said this. Love this, it. Is, this is more me just kind of reading from the outside looking in. It was like, yeah. yes, like these are our fans. And I remember like seeing Chris like <laughs> being on the computer and like working, like, you know, dealing with like the street team and like really like, you know, you guys were like, no, this is our career. And you took it really seriously. And, you know, and there was this, like I said, this expectation of a professional approach, you know, that in a way at the time I really looked up to where I was like, damn, man, like we need to get our shit together. These guys are, you know, they're, they're making shit happen. You know, whereas us, we kind of like stumbled and, you know, and Forrest gumped our way <laughs> into, you know, a, 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 a music career, you know? So it was just really kind of interesting. And I, and I wondered just that, like, 
when you go in kind of like, all right, this is a business and we're going to be like, and you kind of have a plan and then all of a sudden it doesn't go where you exactly thought, but it's only because of the expectations, right? Like if you guys had no expectations and then you look, you're all of a sudden you're on tour with Slayer. And even we did that, that tour with you guys in O2 with uh, 36 Crazy Fists and they weren't like huge shows, but they also weren't terrible shows. It wasn't like we were playing in front of nobody. Like you guys did have fans and, People gave a shit about the band. Hell, we did a show at Birch Hill, and we headlined because we're like, yeah, we're from Jersey. We're killing here. And, like, half the place cleared out after you guys played. So there was definitively, I think, something building, but I think it's just the – there was expectation that it's going to happen in one record or one touring cycle instead of looking at the long term, you know? Especially when that was kind of, too, as, as well, the era when, like, people were really starting to see some impressive first week sales and, like, people started paying attention to that. Like, that's a thing now that we all have to worry about. And, like, uh, like a band like Linkin Park came out of the gate and they were just like, whoa, that's a lot of sales first week. And I think we sold, like, 4,000. They sold, like, 48,000. Well, I mean, <laughs> Something that album, like that. But yeah, I, that album but they, only they sold 12 million us. copies, dude. I mean, sure, it's one of the at the time, Roadrunner were expecting us to be like a Slipknot. Yeah. Which was not even the same ballpark at, at that time. Well, but that's also, you know, that's for our genre, we get one of those bands a decade, basically. It's like yeah. Pantera, then it's Slipknot, you know, and then, you know, then Five Finger, you know, it took really to a Five Finger Death Punch before you had another band that was getting gold, platinum records playing arenas you know you know Vince sevenfold i don't really put in there they're probably a little more on the mainstream side of things but um in terms of heavy bands it just you know but it's i don't know it's just it puts at the forefront how much expectations characterize what is success or not success you know um and also like something with me like over the years because after a while i started having expectations and having those expectations not met and being unhappy. And then as I kind of got into my thirties and things started dwindling down, it, you know, it, it was just like, Oh, to be in this, to do this shit, you have to be process oriented, not results oriented because there's so little you can control, right? You can go and work and make the best album you can make and you can put on the best performance, but there's only, but you can't make people like it. You know? No, yeah, obviously not. There was a, there's a lot that you said there. Um, I think it's really cool that you noticed that we did run it like a business because we absolutely, absolutely did. But we also fumbled all over ourselves. We didn't know shit about business, which is what's interesting. Well, and how now you? you're like 20 years old. Exactly. Exactly. Now that I'm out of the band and I'm more quote unquote in a corporate world, I look at all the, I see daily now all the mistakes that, that the band made in terms of quote unquote business. But we were, we were business in the sense of like taking our shit absolutely serious from like practicing to, uh, just the way we did the, uh, books and took care of our merchandise and, um, but of course, the more you go through it, you learn and you learn from we learn from a lot of bands, too. And things I like to learn from bands is just I was all about the stage setup and how they did their production. And I think that my expectations that would, I guess, defeat me were when we weren't able to put on 
the type of show that maybe I thought we were at a level at to put on because we were either restricted or financially restricted, or maybe we were second of five on a package. And, um, I just, uh, am the type of person that like, yeah, it's cool to go see a band, but if the show isn't progressing with the sound and the albums, then I just, I guess I uh, didn't think it was as great, but uh, that's just my own insecurity, I suppose, because some people are, you know, look at Rage Against the Machine, like, I'd be happy happy to see them, and all they do is amps, and uh, but I guess I love that crazy production and always wanted to do more with that, so my ex- expectations were more along those lines of, like, being able to put on a great show for the fans and a lot of cool production stuff. Well, I, th- I think a lot of that stuff, I can go either way. And I think it depends on the band. And I also think it depends on, you know, I you know, I think I, I have that other element of, you know, some of the best shows I've ever seen have been no production. You know, I saw At the Drive-In play in a firehouse. You know, I saw, uh, I remember Andrew W.K. headlined this thing called Furnace Fest in 2002. And it was... And I think the the production literally was just the lights. They actually turned the the stage lights on because it was like a hardcore fest, so no one had anything. And it was just the craziest show I've ever been to. Like sometimes, you know, bands putting on great shows in spite of not having, you know, a great light show or or having, you know, crazy scrims or whatever. Like sometimes, or like I think the thing is now you'll see bands where they have tracks, you know, and then somehow their tracks don't work. And they'll like cancel the show (laughs) or they'll, you know, they, without the tracks, they're kind of like when, once you rely, like if you're relying on the lights or if you're relying on the tracks, then maybe it's like, all right, maybe some of the other elements aren't working as well as they need to, you know? Yeah. 100%. I mean, I, I I love a show with minimal production. I love a show with big production. Nine Inch Nails, great example of that. Uh, You could go see them and, Sometimes they'll they'll strip down the production to to the bare minimum compared to some of these higher arena productions and um, but yeah like you said some of these bands that are that'll play like festivals and stuff and yeah you have to absolutely be able to be able to bring it and not rely on anything but your your instrument and your your abilities um, but yeah I just I'm a sucker for that sort of thing like I think I always listen I always admired that that you guys held your uh, held that stuff to a, a high standard. I remember, I think it was Rob, or maybe you talking about it, like saying how the reason why you guys made that a priority was like the Kiss thing. Like you basically have to act like a big band if you want to become a big band. Act as if. <laughs> yeah, that know. was from the beginning. We our first show, we played the same venue I saw you guys at with All Out War. That was our very first concert. We opened for Napalm Death, and today is the day. And we brought like crew <laughs> they, they were good for nothing but it's like no 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 we gotta have passes they have camaro like, work shirts with their names on not it. yet not <laughs> yet not yet but yeah there is something to be said at least in that era about perception i don't know that it's the same anymore uh i think I, i'm so out of the loop now i don't I couldn't even tell you the last concert i went to but uh the uh there's definitely an era too even this this goes back to talking with record labels and getting signed it's that perception we were able to create a little bit with the early stages of the internet where now so much it's not as easy to the mystique uh, 
yeah, that to be have any sort of mystique whatsoever, correct? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely hear that, but I thought it, it, it definitely served you guys well, and it probably did advance the um, because I think that, that there's that element of being like a local band and a national band, and half of not being you know, is being a national band is not acting like a local band, <laughs> right. it's like just the psychology of it, of like, no, we're. We're legit, motherfucker. We're here. We're 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 the real deal. So we got our own guitar tech, dude. <laughs> can't, dude can't figure out that the guitar is not working because he has to hit the power button. On. <laughs> it's hard work, man. It's hard work. So so things really switched for you guys when Impossibility of Reason came out. You know, I, I you know, and and this is I think me speaking as objectively as possible. I still think it's probably the album that you guys made that had the most impact. And if you were to say this is the definitive work of a band or say, hey, if I listen to Camaro, what album should I listen to? That's the one I would give. I still think there's something special about that album. It just it just sounds alive and the production is perfect. And the way you guys, you know, the order of the songs, it's just like it's a it's a band hitting their their moment. Um when you in between those those records where you know you kind of were more in the new metal sound and then you kind of you, it still sounds like the same band, but obviously you kind of went in more thrashy, kind of almost you know, a lot of Pantera influence on there. Um, like, what was what was going on? Like, like did you feel like that was more the natural sound, or did you feel like did it feel like all right? Well, this other you know Shadows Fall, Lamb Ground, these bands are kind of taking off, but maybe we should do that. Was it more calculated? It was definitely more calculated. There was there was a, a, a few things I can remember just from my perspective that'll point to the the change in sound one was that our amps just didn't sound good with seven strings back then and it we couldn't uh get a good mix in our monitors as a as a young opening band and a lot of times the riffs would get washed out and i remember that being a a complaint for Rob is the tone just wasn't cutting through back then. I mean, nowadays, like seven strings cut through. Like we had these like Yamaha digital heads we were using because they gave them to us for free. I remember. And you remember all that? And then we didn't use cabinets because like we saw Meshuggah and they were like, oh, they're not using cabinets. Think about how much trailer space we'll save. Anyway, uh, I digress. But uh, that was one factor was just trying to get a better tone. Another factor was... Uh, being misunderstood. Um, a lot of the negative reviews that I mentioned with our first album were pinning us as a new metal band. And while, yes, we liked Corn and, and Slipknot, and some of us liked Limp Bizkit and all these new metal bands, like we loved Metallica, Pantera, Slayer. We were way more uh, rooted in that scene. And... Um, once we got Matt into the band from Hagar, switching from Hagar, um, his yeah, influences. Jason, Jason Hagar, miss, miss you. Absolutely. Love that dude. Jason, Jason was more into uh, some of the newer metal sounds of the time where DeVries was a lot more rooted in hardcore and earlier death metal, some of the like real old school napalm death. Um, so our influence has kind of changed and then playing with bands that were a little bit more along our lines didn't kind of happen until afterwards. Like you guys definitely 
had a lot more thrash than most of the bands that we toured with in 2001, 2002. I'd say the Besides Slayer and maybe you guys, I can't think of anyone else who wasn't maybe new metal. Yeah. So we were kind of in the new metal scene, but we were like, man, this, this we crush in this scene because we're so heavy compared to the new metal bands, and we have a lot more technical prowess than any of these new metal bands that we were jamming with most of the time. But uh, in terms of like, you know, we were dead inside. We had this middle part that was just blatant Meshuggah ripoff and. That wasn't too common in the new metal scene at that point. So stuff like that, this technical shit. But yeah, I'd say it's more our roots were the the classics and we wanted to bring that out more so. But did and, you did you see though, like I think, because what was going on at that time was I think the writing was on the wall as well that new metal was kind of falling sure, out. Yeah, you know, we, kind of falling yeah, out of we favor. Didn't, we didn't like that term applied to us. We liked the music. But we definitely felt started feeling the stigma of what that term meant. This is past and kind of what, corny. Yeah, and it just wasn't what we were what we were trying to convey. And I'd say the biggest influence in like image would be like definitely seeing more like the older school style metal bands and like missing that. I remember seeing Lamb of God the first time. I'm like, man, this is what I'm fucking talking about. Like these guys, it was at that SOU fest. Yeah. I remember pointing to somebody. I'm like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, these guys are doing it right. Like, and this was a very early stages of Lamb of God, but they had the hair, they had the strobe lights. I'm like, this is what metal is, man. Like, I was missing that from this the new metal scene. And yeah. we were like adamant about trying to bring that back. I remember our manager was like mad because we were going to just kind of start growing our hair out and like dressing more like metal dudes. And like, it's like, man, it was. You guys look like Lincoln Park, but you sound like, you know, way heavier. <laughs> I don't remember a band he used, but uh, but we didn't want to look like Lincoln Park, I guess. You know, I mean, some of us did. <laughs> I remember the photo shoot for Impossibility Reason. Uh, we yelled at Jim because he he brought like a polo sweater. Fuck you, do it. We're done with that, man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Didn't you get the memo? We've changed our style. <laughs> we've, moved, we've, we've moved on. So, so Impossibility comes out, and I think it's and I think right around that time that we toured you guys again. That was the Slipknot Fear Factory, the Jägermeister tour. Yeah, that's awesome. And clearly, at that time, things had changed. Like all of a sudden, I think you guys were kind of a band of the moment. You know, where things were really happening. I think you'd done Ozfest. Um, you know, then we did the tour with you guys in the UK with Killswitch. You guys were, you know, I think there were shows on there where you guys were, you know, did even better than Killswitch. Like you were really, really killing. I mean, did you guys all of a sudden the expectations got, you know, kind of uh, put, you know, put down on the previous record? Now all of a sudden, do the expectations get risen back to a bigger level now that you saw that the success with Impossibility? Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. 
Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. It is now 2024, and the choice is up to you. Do you listen to good podcasts, or do you listen to bad ones? Well, we've got a suggestion for you. How about you listen to a good podcast for the first time in your miserable life? I can think of one. Overnight Drive. Going strong. 11 years now. The podcast about nothing. Your favorite podcast's favorite podcast. Do you enjoy nothing? <laughs> so do we. Why don't you come over and check it out and stop listening to other podcasts? Thank you. I think one thing that we always uh, had going against us as a band is we never really noticed when the, the good stuff was happening. And we almost felt like. Um, <laughs> you can never like take nothing's time ever to smell. Good enough. You can never take you time can, to smell yeah, the roses. Nothing's ever good enough or you're not smelling the roses. It's like one or the other. Yeah. And it always we all, it, I think sometimes our ambition was just absolutely through the roof, you know, and uh, that's kind of sad. Fault. That's kind of that kind of bones me out, man, that I, cause you know, I saw it and I never, you know, I, I think there's this thing, especially with, with young bands is it, like you said, it's, I think it's probably the same mentality for people that become obsessed with wealth or banging all the hot chicks. Like there is no amount that will ever satisfy you, you know, cause there's always going to be more money to make. There's always going to be a hotter, lady to to bang there's all and when it comes to success especially with bands is that what do we do we compare ourselves to the next uh, uh ring on, on on the ladder and you know and and i think what we've noticed in in a lot of ways the bands that weren't looking up and were kind of happy in their own skin were the ones that ended up being you know having a little more success long term and i look at bands like every time i die um, darkest hour where they, even though there was ambition, they were kind of like, no, we're just going to stay in our lane. We're going to stay in the van. We're going to, you know, like, and, um, you know, and I, and I look, look at that and I, you know, and I wonder, you know, I think if, you know, perhaps we took on a little more of those expectation ambition as the band went, went on for us, you know, but so I can definitely, uh, identify with that. It was weird. It wasn't something like that was almost conscious where you're like, sick about it you know like quote unquote keeping up with the kardashians or keeping up with the joneses back then but there's this thing that like that demoralizes your success that uh we're in an industry that the one the one upping is very in much in your face so it's like you might think you're equal with like a certain band and then you find out you're on the same label maybe similar kind of sales and then you're like how's that band making like five grand more a night 
and then yeah. you're like, well, what the hell? What are we doing wrong? And you start analyzing it. And then it's like, well, maybe we're not playing good enough. Maybe the productions, but you know, you're trying to consciously fix things that maybe aren't necessarily broken yeah. because you're hearing the success of people you're thinking are you're perceiving to be either your peers or maybe not even your peers. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what? Yeah, how's that band made? What? And and I, you don't even know now that if it's true or not. And I think we started as we got older to appreciate things much more so than at the height. I mean, at the height, we were just so hungry. That era was filled with hunger, like a, 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 an unquenchable thirst. And I think that that's the type of emotion you are seeing was like a band that we thought we were going to be something. We got shut down in that regard. But so now we were like, well, we kind of somehow just got another chance. So we're not going to let go of this and let's just be as hungry as possible and as relentless as possible. And I don't think you can have time to smell the roses when that's going on. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wonder, you know, because, you know, we were, you know, lucky enough to tour with you guys, you know, continually. Like we, we did the tour with you and Arch Enemy, I think 2006. Nevermore, yeah. Um, well, well, Nevermore did the other leg. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was a, a, a great tour. And just kind of, I remember that actually the really funny story from that, that tour was that was the day the last Tool album came out. Okay. And you went and actually, no, I, I can't remember if we bought it or if Chris somehow got like a, a like he found a copy online or something, but I remember the be- the beginning of Vicaria starts the ding 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 like in the song it's five seconds in and you're like this is already the greatest album I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like me. It's so weird that you mentioned that. I listened to that song this morning because I'm in the tool mode because they're coming to my area finally for the first time in like I don't know how long. I I I bought tickets like a fan. I'm on Ticketmaster like hitting refresh at the second they went on sale. And I'm so excited like I bought con- like when's the last time I bought concert tickets? I couldn't even tell you. Usually I'm just like, "Hey man, uh, can I get into this show?" Uh so I felt I feel really cool. I'm still just as big of a Tool fan today as i was 10 years ago well the great thing about that comment was it it, it was exactly <laughs> what i was thinking <laughs> it's still it's like yo they're on, they're that and guess what still haven't put a record out since that day which like, oh. like like think about it like that for me that feels like 50 years ago that doesn't even feel like I, it was like a lifetime ago yeah i i, I feel like i bought that at, across from the norva was that where it was? I don't even remember. I don't, I don't remember where we were. I, I, it's a record I, store across from the Norva. There was that mall, remember, across from the Norva? Yeah. And we'd have to look it up to, to be sure. You, you could be right about Chris scoring a leak. He was yeah. very uh, good at that sort of thing back then. But uh, Internet man. Actually, I think on that same tour, he had a leak of the of End of Heartache Killswitch album. I remember hearing that, that for the first time, I think, came from him. So, you know. You know, if the feds are listening to this, uh, you know, Mark can probably, you know, give it, give you his whereabouts for his uh, pirating. Well, he, never, he never pirated them. They, was people, they just mysteriously showed up on the bus on some blank disc. Oh, well, sure. Mysteriously. Oh, All right. I think it was usually those record label A&Rs. I think I would point to uh, them. They're... Okay. All right. <laughs> you say so. So, no, but we got to tour a lot 
you know, during that time. So, I, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, being and me being kind of like you being a guy who's interested in the business and, you know, and say, oh, this, how did they figure this out? And how, you know, how are they yeah. doing? And you become kind of a student of career arcs, I guess, because you're trying to emulate that and figure out how you can make things happen. You know, um, actually, I remember the, like when you guys put out the self-titled, her, you did the tour, I think it was Six Feet Under was main support. Yep. All That Remains. All That Remains. And that was at Irving Plaza. And you guys murdered it. Like, there was like 900 people there. Like, that was a fucking killer fucking... Tr- like, how are you not smelling the roses then, motherfucker? Like, when you're like headlining... You, you want to you know why is because I remember that night, as soon as we got off stage and we felt we, we had... It, this is, again, these people that want to bring you down in the industry. Like when you're on those highs. And I remember being on a high that night because the show was great and we played really well. And man, you know, it's it's not only hard to pack out New York City, but to get them to move <laughs> is a whole nother part of the equation that people don't understand. That might have been the best headline so, show I ever saw you guys play. It was incredible. So that night comes out and, <coughs> and the someone from our record label basically said to me like well you know we were going to put a lot more into the album but uh you know we didn't think that it was that catchy the songs are kind of long and it was basically telling us that they they kind of glossed over our entire marketing campaign for that album and didn't believe in it yeah and it's just like what the fuck man so you kind of get in these zones of like depression because you're like you you don't really understand how how to deal with a situation like that you know you're like and then how do you be cool on the bus and like you don't want to bring everyone else's vibe down because everyone else is having a good time but then it's like you just got this awful news from your record label and you you, of course you want to tell it to everyone else but yeah but it it affects everything but were you of the mind at that time that were you overvaluing record sales as opposed to like ticket sales and merch and kind of the stuff that was actually making you money. I think at that point, the most important thing was record sales because in my opinion, record sales determined your ability to bring in uh, quote unquote marquee value, which yeah. is going to then lead to merch. Sound scan was the king. It, 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 it led at that it, era. It, it would say what your guarantee was going to be, what, you know, how likely it was you would get on a particular tour or festival and stuff. Correct. So sales were everything because exactly if, if we could boast X amount of sales or have a really good first week, then our, our potential of getting on a better tour, which would then get us better guarantees and merch those things that make us money were likely to increase. Yeah. But I mean, I'm sure that the self-title was probably your, at that time, the biggest debut, right? I think you sold like 13 or 14,000 or something. Big, it, right? it was at the t- it, it was at the time, but it wasn't that we were even disappointed in it. It was the comment like we could have done so much more had we believed in yeah. it. Yeah, it was like a sh- it was but, like a big amount for but us. But was Roadrunner the type of label at that time where they would be listening to demos and would be because because Monty was still there, so he, was he Abs- like absolutely he 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 had a hard time catching on from the start. But you guys didn't. So if if Monty was like, hey man. I, I'm digging what you guys are doing. It's cool, but I need a single. I need a pure hatred. I need a power Correct. trip. He would say Correct. that. Not in those words so much, but it was it, it was definitely implied that that would be. Uh, it's not that it was. It would. 
that he said that I want that sort of thing is more like there are there this doesn't exist. All your songs are long. We got to chop it up. Like and you guys didn't want to compromise. You were like, no, this is our vision. Well, the, the thing what we had to do is, uh, well, yeah, we definitely had a vision that we were we were trying to achieve, and but also, um, yeah, we kind of played ball. Like no, nothing remains. The video we we shortened the the version so it could be for quote unquote MTV and video channels. So that's one of the best play. songs you guys ever wrote. That song is incredible. I was listening to it today, actually. I haven't heard any of our music in a long time. And I'm like, man, I should probably listen to something so I remember what... <laughs> you know, we're going to be talking about this stuff. I kind of have to get into character. <laughs> no, I want you to be you. You, I want you. I don't want you to be a character. The character... No, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. You gotta, no, you got to put yourself back in that place. But it's... um, No, but listen, I, I, I understand both angles of it. You know, because I think... Because we kind of were going through the same thing where... Uh, bands like us and you guys and Killswitch, all these bands, we like kind of established this sound where we all kind of shared similar vibes, but we did our own thing. And then I think you guys were, you know, you were even though the perception might have been different, we're, you know, we're think we, you know, we're heady and we're, you know, kind of, you know, uh, view ourselves as. as trying to inject some intellectualism into the the music and so we're like all right well here's this thing we did but how do we take it somewhere else how do we go somewhere new um and sometimes in that you can lose just the simplicity of the thing that was working you know or the the formula and it's i think it's a it's a tightrope because you're as an artist you don't want to repeat yourself you know but you know, I think in hindsight, I can listen back to certain things. I'm like, man, maybe that was a little self-indulgent where I wasn't just, all right, you know, whereas like a band like Hatebreed is like, nah, man, we got our, we know what's coming. This is what it is. Meat and potatoes. We're going to give you the goods. I think a band like Killswitch is like that. Like they kind of have their formula and, and that like I said, no one that, does that denigrate them. Like, I just think they know who they are and they'll deviate a little bit, but it's like, this is what we do. And and you know, or you know, I think you can put a band like Lamb of God in that thing where even though they, they go out and they try new things, there's that kind of that eighty percent of what it is that's you know what you're gonna get. Um mm-hmm. and sometimes trying to find you know, new ways or be experimental or have your you know, we're all trying to make our dark side of the moon or something, at the end of the day, it's about the, the hooks, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> sure, yeah. There I mean there was a little too of that. I think that um, the simplicity of impossibility of reason worked really well, even though there's some some stuff on there that might be a little bit more on the technical side. The the brunt of it is is pretty straightforward, whereas self titled is um, a little more on the progressive side of things, and I can see how that would alienate some of course while you're working on it you think well we sound like the same band we're just taking a different mission but um another thing i noticed too is that's weird about releasing albums is the fans seem to catch on i don't know if this was the case for you a year later it most certainly was for as like yeah album after the fact yeah well yeah because it, it it a lot of times you don't i experience that with every album like i thought determination was a failure until we basically right before we put out gone forever and then we did a tour with atreyu you know and 
all these people were like determined, you know, and that, you know, determination fans. And then we did this tour, this headline tour with Walls of Jericho. And all of a sudden we were killing it on those songs. I'm like, where were these people when we were touring on the record? And, and it's, and in, in a lot of ways, I think that's also that uh, ambition thing of you're, you know, you're like a, a cat chasing the laser instead <laughs> of being patient and kind of just, because I think the, the patience of it is saying, guess what? We like what we're doing. We're not going to rely on other people to tell us what we're doing is good. And that's a, a kind of being a not being insecure thing being secure about your, your, your music. And I think, you know, um, us personally, you know, maybe we allowed ourselves to be like, all right, well, people aren't feeling this, so let's do this. Or, you know, and, and I think that's the thing, especially when you tour a lot, because you kind of have, you're, you're getting immediate feedback on what you're doing. Right. And it, and yeah, absolutely. It, it, it informs you, you know. Yeah, if we're standing up there noodling for 20 minutes, like the fans just don't care. But if we, but it, that sort of thing would kind of have an impact, but not so much. I think that a lot of times that like those types of parts happen in the magic, those rare moments when you're actually all in a studio writing versus writing at home where you're like, oh, let's throw this beat down part in here, right here. And you kind of just imagine how the fans are going to react to it. Yeah. And like, uh, you can almost foresee it, but we stopped jamming in the room together after self-titled. Oh, no, I should take that back. Resurrection, I think, was the last album we made in a room together. Well, but half of that was written on computers. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny you say that because I was going through all the records today. And, you know, to me, because I, I felt like self-titled was like kind of a deviation. But like I said, it's kind of your your thinking man's record. It's really dense. There's a lot going on. Love the way it fucking sounds. Um, and then, um, yeah, that makes us incredible. Yeah. I heard it to like I said, I heard it today, like Colin Richardson. Yeah. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And then infection or nonfiction, uh, resurrection to me was kind of a little more like return to the impossibility kind of songs, a little more sh shorter, but really fucking catchy, you know? And, and I, I think that record holds up really, really well. And then it's like after that, I think that's where it kind of started to lose me. Where like I went to listen to Infection, and it's like everything's very slow. It's like a very slow <laughs> record where I'm like, I'm like, where? Because we got all you know, we got all used to the fucking to the to the tempo. Like these motherfuckers start smoking all the weed. You can smoke some of the weed. You don't have to smoke all the weed. It's like uh, it was all the weed. Yeah, it was all all the weed. Um, <laughs> you know, and 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 then I started. You know, I don't want to get too much into the. You know, no, get head, into it. Head shrink the band, but at the at that point, because that's right around the time you know between infection and the next record, where a lot of the original members started leaving. Um, was it a scenario where creatively the band kind of felt like it had? kind of went through its bag of tricks and people weren't as connected to it anymore? Or, or am I just hearing something that's not there? Yeah, I, didn't, I never got that vibe. I do I do understand that one tiny thing to agree with that, I wouldn't maybe even necessarily call it tiny, it is kind of major, but when that album and the way that album was written, The Infection, a good chunk of it, if, if two-thirds, if not more, it was just Rob and I jamming in the back of our tour bus mm -hmm. and writing everything and we doing everything with like a drum machine and whatnot. 
So by the time it came to actually like, hey, Andals, like, here's the song. Can you just keep the drums the same way? <laughs> like, don't change them. We like yeah. them how they are. Was he cool with They're that? Take, yes and no. That that's where I mean. There's that. There's a little bit of that, like creative uh, disappointment. You know, we didn't really leave it to a position for Andals to be creative on that album and and give. Whereas Resurrection, he wrote a good majority of all of his stuff. And uh, this album, we, we kind of liked what we we wrote and didn't give much room for anything else. Um, but other than that, no, we were all really proud of that album. It was uh, um, a myriad of things that you could point at that lead to it. But I mean, ultimately, you know, friendships tear apart is going to be the crux of it. Money is going to be the crux of it. And 2010, you're looking at a uh, very interesting time in music. So it started to fall apart. And then we're kind of left with Age of Hell was, again, Rob and I making an album, but this time we weren't making it together. It was like Ben and I, the producer, are making it, and Rob kind of had demos and like, already lined up for it. So what? So, so, so being between, we had, we had so Jim. We're not we had, as cohesive to other people because it seemed maybe a little more one-sided than the rest of our albums. Yeah. So in between that, though, Jim leaves and right. Chris, Chris and both both. Yeah. And what was, what do you think was going on with, with, with those guys? It was just kind of, you think they just, they were ready to move on to another chapter of their life kind of thing? Well, there was that. I mean, of course, you know, all the things I mentioned, like personality clashes and stuff like that, the business getting to you and allowing business to get in the way of friendship. There's a huge aspect of that. Um, Jim got married. He was looking to have children and settle down. Uh, he want, at that time, he was the first one to mention leaving the band. And his desire for us was not to leave. It was his desire for us was to put the band on hold so he could kind of go and do those things and go home, make some money, get it, you know, work, live a normal life for a little bit because we'd been going around the hamster wheel for, for such a long time. None of us really agreed with that. So he was like, all right, I'm out. Yeah. Do you, um, do, in hindsight, do you think it might have been healthy for the band, maybe to like put a break? Maybe one hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. I actually wrote a blog a couple of years ago for the fans to kind of explain a little bit of my side of the story to help them uh, understand it. For other than just like a, a a vague, mysterious comment that was left on the official Camara site that was like, "Eh, you know, we're out of here. See ya." kind of gave my explanation and one of the parts I did mention was that in hindsight it, it probably would have been a great idea because we had been going around the hamster wheel so much and it, it, we were just worried that it would kill our momentum we had just gotten off mayhem it, it was very successful for us and uh we're like no that's a terrible idea we need to keep going um right now we got to kind of quote unquote strike why the iron's hot we did that tour with disturbed we had a lot of things going for us at the time. So mm -hmm. leaving was, was like the last or putting the things on hold was the last thing on our mind. So when he left, um, Emil uh, Wurstler from Doth came in to replace him on bass because uh, when Matt DeVries had a baby, Emil uh, filled in on guitar. So he knew all the songs already. 
and we were on tour with Doth, and that made just things really easy. So we played some shows, and it was like the fans don't really care that yeah. you know, Jim's not here. I mean, they love Jim, and that's not trying to be disrespectful, but there wasn't anybody coming up and being like, what happened? Where is this guy? You know, is, I, things look different. There was none of this. So I think that was kind of a bad thing that that happened. I think there should be more fan backlash. Yeah. Of shit. Because what that, what that signals to the band is that members are somewhat expendable in a way. And then when you start seeing that all these bands are changing lineups right around the same time, it's like, well, there's, there's something in the water. Yeah. And we kind of became disappointed in uh with Andals a little bit. His uh we were I think it was something really dumb too, like guitar went out on a show and we needed him to play like a drum solo to fill the fill the void because it was like embarrassing. We couldn't play for a minute. And he just didn't really want to do that. It wasn't his personality and it was like <laughs> It pissed us off for some reason. He'd want to do it just he'd want to do a drum solo. Right. And it just kind of pissed us off. But if you know Andal's like, it shouldn't piss you off because Andal's never does drum solos. So why it pissed us off at that moment, you know, looking back, I'll never know. But, you know, we kind of said, uh, I think he had a lot going on. He was getting married and it just seemed like his playing and his attitude of wanting to be in the band weren't weren't what we were hoping for. Mm-hmm. And when we brought this up to him, it was kind of a surprise to him and crushed his spirits a little bit. So it was like we wanted him to kind of shape up or ship out, and that kind of approach wasn't the best thing to do. Yeah. and Tough love what, what wasn't he, working. Yeah. Tough love is what we were doing, and he needed something different. Yeah. Which back, it backfired on us, and he, and he left. And uh, don't blame him. And Chris was a you know really good friend of his and kind of saw how things were going and it was getting a little more intense and less, you know, a bunch of friends from Cleveland and having a good time. So he gracefully bowed out. And then we made, had to make an album and that just, I mean, it, it went well, but it didn't go, you know, 100% as well as it could have. So yeah, well, we I, well, to, well, to me, I think... You know, like you said, with the the thing with Jim, you know, he wasn't really a writer. I'm I'm gonna presume as much as uh, some of the other guys in the band. And Andals had already left, and you guys made a really good record without him. So I think the that the impact, obviously, the personal impact is huge. But to me, the the real dividing point was when Rob left because his guitar playing style described so much of the of the band's identity uh his lead guitar playing all that all that stuff um do you have any insights i definitely want to get rob on here to kind of give his side of the story um if you if you would like to but um do you have any insight on 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 rob's leaving leaving the band well it was definitely unfortunate and i don't disagree with you at all i think that uh his leads are are they're awesome. Like there's really, I mean, I, you know, that's such an overword, overused word, but I really want to try to take a moment and like truly use the word, <laughs> how it's meant to be used when I, when I say that. And uh, my favorite kind of guitarists are the ones that put a lot of feel and soul into their leads and like a David Gilmore, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care where I'm at. 
you throw, and even if it is comfortably numb, top song, one of their top songs, it, it, radio, you hear it all the time. But that guitar solo, I heard a million times, it can still do something to me internally. Mm-hmm. And not many guitarists that I've come across in my listening to like have that impact on me, but Rob has that impact on me. And I, I look at his soulful style of playing very similar to how I feel and, and react from like a David Gilmore solo, which is very positive and, and heartfelt and emotional. The same with his riff writing. Um, my favorite uh, song that Kamira ever wrote, even though uh, it's not like the full lineup would be the song Powerless on the Age of Hell. And that's because it's probably the most personal song I ever wrote in terms of like dealing with a real, some real life shit. But the riffs, like I kind of like, you know, like married myself to them emotionally so much. And like, because it was like calling to me on like a spiritual level. So I agree with you. It was, it was drastic. And I had no desire to quote unquote, continue the band uh, after that. But there was a funny little thing called a record deal hanging over my head (laughs) that kind of forced me to think I might have to give this a different shot. Mm -hmm. So, but you don't really want to kind of comment on, on Rob's, uh, Oh, on his departure. Yeah. Why he left. Yeah. Oh, um, I mean, that's, that's for him to say, I think that, you know, uh, creatively in terms of like, business wise you know we uh, definitely reached a boiling point and with all of the stress of the things that happened and um making age of hell was uh not as probably not as collaborative as it should have been mm-hmm. um on on my end and uh definitely once he left the band quote unquote but had to tour with us like you know i wouldn't say that his life was very pleasant in, in the bus once we kind of knew he was out yeah so he he had he had announced that he was going to be leaving but he still did some touring he still did some touring because it was the it was kind of the right thing to do um he left after the the album was finished but we had not really set to tour with it so as you know you can't really just go make an album for a label take all their money and be like yeah we're not gonna go tour on it yeah well i mean you can (laughs) you can but they might it's probably not a good look yeah they that and they want their money back sometimes yeah yeah so you know rob did a and matt both did the solid of staying within the group to do as much touring commitments as possible and um yeah just a very like dark regretful time all around i think like you literally can say like you lose your mind sometimes when the stress is getting to you and yeah. i can definitely say like i didn't treat people the best during those time frames and didn't understand what was happening so you get uh stressed and maybe you don't have the right patience locked in or the right skill set to deal with uh some of these weird anomalies like you know arguments in the past were were easy to deal with once an, an, an economy changes and an industry goes upside down and a whole new scene comes up on you you're like whoa these are some different problems now we got to worry about the internet and twitter yeah what? What happened to worrying about ripping off Metallica? Yeah. Well, that was a, that was a point in the, in the art like I wrote the article about, 
you know, the whole kind of downfall of our bands, like right, literally, I think it was a day or two after you guys broke up. And one of the, the points I made was our genre was one of the best, it was, was in the time frame where just the timing was rough because we existed before the internet and we existed after, but we, but not early enough where we got to put out like three or four records on like Atlantic and buy houses and, or, you know, maybe you got a house. I mean, I never got a house, but, anyway. <laughs> but, um, you know, but we, we didn't get the, the benefit of kind of the eighties, nineties boom. But then we also got the kind of the downside of not having, having to learn on the fly how to exist in the social media kind of the, the era where, like I said, where bands just sell less records and you have to, uh, figure out other ways of generating revenue of promoting the band. It's just, a, it's just a different thing. So we, we kind of, you know, and I, and I think, and, and if you weren't huge, you don't have as much help. You have to do it more on your own. Um, whereas I imagine, Absolutely. I imagine yeah. some of the bigger bands, they have, you know, bigger management staffs and bigger record labels and they can kind of outsource a lot of that, uh, activity, you know, um, in a, in a, in another way. But, um, but anyway, so, and so, at the end of the day, no one's going to do it as good as you do it yourself, in my opinion. And to be successful on, on social media, it's almost a full-time job. And it, like, I got burned out on doing that sort of thing personally, because again, it's taking, you know, I want to write music and, and perform music and not, I like Twitter and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong, but that shouldn't be like the focus of the job and yeah, it's, dealing with man, dealing with managers and like a lot of record labels and industry changes, like all these things that like pile up on the quote unquote business side of things. You're right. A lot of bigger bands probably have a staff to deal with most of that but another thing we always did from day one was was we were always very hands-on because you know in many ways you start seeing some of these early people on uh, coming up on your career bumbling your career yeah yeah wait a minute i don't want anybody handling this shit because the last guy that was handled it didn't do it right it, that, i guarantee the next guy is not going to do it right either <laughs> yeah I so think... we almost almost wore the superman cape a little too often yeah, well, that's that, that's that's I think where the the lack of trust comes in, where you've been burned a couple times. You know, listen, you can be the same way in relationships, right? You get cheated on a couple times, and like, there's no one out there for me. You know, I think it, yeah, sure. I think it could go bo- both ways. Where you you know, I I was always of the mind that the successful bands I had seen, like I said, even if that's a moderate, like to me, a moderate but consistent success in some ways is more impressive than kind of the the flame that burns really bright and the the pattern I saw is a lot of those bands would usually work with the same core management label agent for you know 10 15 20 years um because they kind of know who they are and they understand and that and you just can't I don't think you can do it all yourself unless you're just one of those super super people I'm I'm super enough, but I'm not that super. And with God forbid, you know, we were lucky to actually have a really good manager even at, at the end of things. And, and I still think they, they did good work for the, for the most part. Um, so, so at this point, and then, you know, Matt eventually leaves. And so now you're kind of the last man standing, but it didn't happen all at once. It was very much one guy that gets replaced. So it's a kind of slow process. What did that yeah. feel like 
once Matt left and you were you kind of looked around and it's like, whoa, it's oh, it's horrible. I'm the only remaining guy. It, it felt horrible. Yeah, definitely horrible. Um, I, as much as I liked uh, the guys, I would eventually line up with. I just knew going forward that any accomplishment is not shared in the same way that it ever would have been before. So, you know, these are the guys for the most part you've come up with. And so when you reach a new height and you're sharing that with your brothers, that camaraderie, even if you are, you know, throwing piss and vinegar at each other at the moment, you can still reach those heights with them. Uh, I kind of felt like I reached heights. I think you wrote something about that in one of your early articles too. Like when you were leaving God forbid or something, you mentioned like, uh, something about like, he kind of been there, done that. And there's this like feeling of that coming in into play too. And, uh, there's no, there's no mountains to climb really. You've played to a hundred thousand people. You've, you know, you've sold a bunch right. of records. You've been on the billboard. You've met most of your heroes. So at that exactly. point, you're you're not doing it because it's like, oh, you've, I've been to Japan. I've been to you know Finland. Like you've you've kind of crossed all these markers off. So at that point, it's what what are the reasons that I'm here? Am I here because I love it? Am I here because I think because I think the early on. You can say you can legitimately go out and do it for years and not really make money, but the experience itself is so unique and special. And you you understand like I understood that. I was like, I'll never get a chance to do these things again. I'm lucky. I might come home and I have five dollars in my pocket, but I've seen more and done more than most of the people I know. Um, and that's invaluable. And it's just um I love the worldly experience of being a touring musician. I love that I can Talk about, you know, being in Barcelona or talk about being in Australia and being there. And, and listen, I have a minute understanding of that place, but I can speak with a, a, a worldly way of, of things because I've, I've been there and I've, I've, I've done it. And I think that's incredible, you know, but at a certain point, you're like, I'm not I don't need to do these things. I'm here because I want to be here. And I think it gives you a different appreciation down the line. Exactly. And that, that I struggled with that, you know, a lot. I didn't want to necessarily keep it the same name. And then everyone kind of convinced me otherwise. Um, and then just like, okay, well, why am I doing it? <laughs> am I doing it because I have to? Am I doing it because I love it? And I genuinely started to learn to love it. And writing the album with everybody, man, I... I I can't complain about it. I, I like the record and I liked recording it. I liked playing with everyone. I thought they were all amazing musicians, fun to be around. Man, so that was some of the most laughs I've ever done on tour. But there's like, you know, there's this still this deep emptiness inside that is like, uh, this isn't Chimera at the end of the day. Like, I don't know these guys. Yeah. I, I don't know who any, I don't know any of these guys. <laughs> And they don't. That I, I, I literally do not know them. Who is this? I don't know wo- anything about them? Yeah, like who is this dude? And who like, is this man, know. woman? What is she in my house? <laughs> this is not my <laughs> car. <laughs> but you know, I, I I have such a deep respect and appreciation for all of them for coming at in at a. You know, I mean, that's a 
hey, we're five guys that are going to pick up the pieces for some other five guys. Like yeah. that's a big, that's a lot on their plate. They had to learn an extensive catalog and uh, do it justice. And, uh, you know, I can't complain about that for the task that needed to be done. I think all of us put 110% into it and then some, but by the end, man, I was fucking burned. Yeah. Well, so, I, I, I totally understand that, you know, me, you know, definitely something, you know, a piece of me went away when Dallas left the band, you know, with God forbid, right. you know, because I'll go back and I'll look at footage and that was the version like that that was got with same five guys for 12 years you know and i look at the bands that and even like even though you said people didn't really notice or or make a big stink about jim leaving i guarantee you the real fan the people had been there from the beginning on some emotional um you know just understanding i think it it matters i think and i think it's much different for metal bands and it is like hardcore scene bands because those bands tend to have a lot of turnover yeah. but with like absolutely like, like it matters when you know dave lombardo isn't in slayer or or when you 100%. know when uh jason newstead leaves metallica like you're you you know you have this relationship you know obviously it's a one-way relationship they don't know you but you know them and it 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 factors into um how you perceive it and how connected you are to it, you know, and, and, and you guys are also one of those bands like where, you know, like with the, that first DVD you put out where you really got to understand the, the personalities of the band. And that was one of the ways you connected to your fans was that people knew you guys. It wasn't just, just the music, you know, you were, you know, they understood each personality and, you know, I think that, I think that matters. I think it is special and it's just it goes to show you that those things that do uh exist and build over the course of a decade or two like that like that chemistry it's a moment in time and it's special and you can't always recreate it uh, doesn't mean you shouldn't move forward but it is a moment yeah in time. 100% and and just to to reiterate like just because fans don't come up and say something that that's where I learned, you know, from that as well. That doesn't mean that they don't feel that, like you said. And, it, you know, I mean, I might not say that this whole podcast, you had this giant booger hanging out of your nose because I'm a nice guy. I'm totally fucking with you. You, you don't. Okay. <laughs> it made you look though. <laughs> Listen. But you know what I mean? Like that's you, sometimes people are quote unquote polite or they don't want to bring up something negative because they, they, they want to, they just want to talk about the good moments or good things that are happening right then and there. So, my perception was off by thinking that like people not leaving was that impactful. It was absolutely the most impactful thing. Yeah. How was, um, your, have you repaired or, you know, done any, like, are you still in touch or cool with the, the kind of the original lineup guys or is there still some friction and distance? Uh, little distance i mean i definitely don't have anything against anybody but uh it's not something where um we've necessarily had enough time to be calling each other up being like hey did you watch uh ash vs evil dead last weekend or whatever the fuck shows on that we're watching yeah ash vs evil dead was october i'm really sorry what's on right now i have no idea i'm, Gr- I'm girls, back to watching Mystery girls Science girls TV. is on man girls 
Okay. So, so yeah. So everyone's we're not calling each other about girls right at the moment, the show, but uh, <laughs> not all of us anyway. But there, I mean, um, I think time is important here, and uh, just the realization of what we did, what we had, what we went through. You asked what something that like that felt like earlier. I used to say it, it was like going through six divorces. But in this case, now I've gone through 12 wow. and uh, and it's it's just like an ex-girlfriend. You know, you have that one girlfriend where you're like, you know, she's pretty cool. I'll put her on my Facebook and maybe, you know, comment on her picture with a new boyfriend because, you know, she's cool. I have nothing against her. Yeah. And there's that one girlfriend where you're like, ah, that was pretty rough, man. Kind of just don't really want to talk about that one. And Probably not going to follow her on Facebook. Yeah, but I don't hate the person. Yeah, and there's there's that one where you're like, man, if I ever see that motherfucker again, I'm gonna stab that bitch. <laughs> and that, but uh, you know that one too. So I think there's a little bit of all of that going into everything, and it all has its own little dynamic for its own reason. And and it, I uh, I wish nothing but any any anyone the best, and I hope that we're able to will uh, be a little closer uh, in the future and and kind of learn from from it all. And mm-hmm. obviously, with uh, Andal's health, for people that maybe have seen with going around, you know that it's certainly a a wake up call for you know a reason to. You know, did anything any of us do to each other? Was it really that bad at the end of the day to not be friends or not be communicating a little more regularly because, uh, you know, some shit that went some shit that went down that maybe we weren't control we weren't in control of necessarily. Yeah, for people listening, uh, Andals uh, from Extra from Chimera is uh, dealing with some health issues and he has a GoFundMe going right now. You know, where you can contribute and help him out. So. I'll, I'll probably include a link so people can check right. that out um, and help out our our buddy. And we really, you know, hope he's doing well and doing doing better. And hopefully, this is going to help him help him out. Um, on on, on kind of on, on, on another note, I don't, I don't want to keep you too much too much longer, but um, you know, kind of in reference to the the final breakup, or you know, what so it was a situation where well, I think it was, it was Amo left. And then the remaining members of the band, all kind of in solidarity, decided to to move on. Depends on what side of the story you read, I suppose. Um, Abel sent us an email, and that kind of sounds weird to say. Um, Abel sent us an email. Say that fast ten times. The <laughs> that he was uh, leaving the band, and I was on a flight home. We were we were coming home from tour. And we were just finishing the tour. I flew home and I don't, other people flew home. So we weren't together. It was like some people rode on the bandwagon back. Some people flew from different areas, yada, yada. Anyway, long story short, um, I sent an email to the rest of the group to like, hey, I think, you know, it's time to pull the plug. But I asked them uh, politely to hold off because like, Literally, I was dealing with uh, a death in my family at the same moment. <laughs> so I was like, uh, man, when it rains, it pours, you know, you get you get bad news. So I'm like, 
I think we should pull the plug, but I want to uh, wait on that. And then for that whatever was before reason, or after Emil's email. Emil left. Then I sent an email. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, I got you. It was after, after. Like, let's let's pull the plug. But can you hold on before we say anything about it? And uh, then we read online that you know that, that everyone left. So I'm not sure what the reason behind that was, or the reason for jumping the gun on something, or making it seem as though they left. Um, if that was like a spiteful tact, I have no idea because, I mean, the people I've talked to in the group, with the exception of Emil, it's all, it's all been cordial. So yeah. I just don't understand how maybe it was miscommunication, uh, but it just, it, it looks shitty yeah. because what it looks like is it looks like, which they might very well have might have like, wanted like to do anyway. It looks like a mutiny. Yeah, yeah, it looks like a mutiny, but I think it was more like a mutual. Yeah. Yeah. So I, think I was ready to either put it on hiatus or leave leave myself. I, I was uh, uh, before Emil quit. I was on the phone with our lawyer, like, when can I leave? How can I leave? How should I do it? Yeah. So I think it was on every. I think if I'm the quote unquote leader, is probably written all over my face. So that I was over. So I have my next question is kind of a two parter. Um, one, are you difficult to be in a band with? And probably. and post. <laughs> And kind of dealing, and if so, or did they, these confluence of events kind of make you take some like kind of look, you know, look in the mirror in a different way or in a more deeper way maybe than you hadn't previously? Sure. I mean, I'm not uh, uh, one of those people that's not going to admit that I, I have my, my problems. And I think that Camaro 1.0 taught me a lot about that. And I learned uh, from self-introspection and seeing doctors and whatnot, I have what's called hypomania, which is a form of bipolar. And this is long after those guys had quit the band that this was diagnosed, but it doesn't give them a reason, but it, it explains that um, my mood can fluctuate pretty easily and I can be difficult to be around. Yeah. Um, I, I've since learned to control that a lot more. And even back in the day, I, I would be on medications that would exasperate those symptoms and didn't realize it. You know, mm-hmm. They thought maybe depressed, but in reality, I'm on the other side of the mental health spectrum. So unintentionally, yes. Um, 2.0, I didn't make anyone's life miserable that I know of. I think that people were underpaid. And I think that that sucks. It was more just like the logistical factors of the band maybe winding down and there not being enough economy and then also not being necessarily tied to the band in the same way on a emotional or um, sentimental level that they could, it was probably a little easier for them to walk away from something that they weren't quite as invested in. Uh, you'd have to ask them, you know, to get a hundred percent answer on that. But I mean, that's, that was, you know, my, some of the people that have been forthcoming about what what happened usually point towards money. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus because you know that they might have very well, like I said, had a mutiny going on. But there's yeah. always some mutiny that are going to talk about it. Well, I think and, I think uh, I think all that stuff comes money. up. Yeah, I think that's listen. That was a factor, not necessarily me leaving, God forbid, but definitely us slowing down our touring in kind of the the six months to a year before the band. Uh, disbanded 
because we literally couldn't really afford to be a full-time band anymore. Like we weren't bringing enough um, income. And, um, and to me, I was actually okay with that. I was okay with being a part-time band. Um, I think in some ways, I think that can save a band. Like you said, like you were talking about the, taking that break maybe back in uh, mm-hmm. o, o 010. I think sometimes you have to put the brakes on it and just kind of be honest with where the band is. Because you can be a very successful band that just does a thing here, a thing there, you know, picks your spots and make it fit into your life the way it works for you. Like there's, n- I think in in many ways when you're doing it as your main job for 10 plus years, you kind of almost begin to think there's only one way to do it and that doing it otherwise is kind of a, a, a diminishment of your standing. And I think it, it can, it's, it's a tough transition when you kind of like, like you said, you just get used to it. You're like, this is my life. This is what I do. I go on tour. I make records. And then mm-hmm. you hit a point where like, oh, I might have to do something else. And it's a fucking, you know, it's a kick to the nuts if you're kind of wrapped up in it. But in a lot of ways, that's, I think that's a big part of growing up is just understanding that, you know, you're going to have to do different things and and the world is going to change. And, and it's just, and at the, ultimately, it's going to make you a stronger and better person and more skilled and more diverse. And, um, you know, so I don't know, like, so, you know, even with my preamble, like what have you been up to since the band is, has, uh, broken up? Well, that, you know, like what you said right there, nails it on the head. I, I, of course don't wish for any arguments or any negativity within the band that, that has happened, but those things too lead you to becoming, if you're, if you're in tune with your feelings and want to become a better person and take those sort of things to heart. Um, yeah, you, I learned a lot about that sort of thing. And basically, uh, I, I switched gears. I, I felt that maybe the music industry just, I needed to walk away from it. I think that maybe I let it wrap my head too much and, and I just walked away and did something completely different and became a commercial photographer. So, I spend most of my time working with businesses and I use the same approach though, like that I learned from music and all this cool stuff I learned from being in a band and how important it is to have your band set up on the internet correctly. And I mean, I live in a small town in rural Ohio and it's the business owners around here don't know anything about the websites. They don't know anything about social media. Um, even just setting up a basic page and these are things that can help these businesses grow. So I'm like in chamber meetings now, like rubbing elbows with all the local business owners. And I use, uh, my photography and then I'll help them build a website or use that photography for a strong image to sell a product. And I also do the other kind of basic photography, working with children. And I mean, that's funny, like metalhead tattooed guy going up to do like a baby's first birthday party it just makes no sense but at the same time it makes perfect sense did you go to school so, for, for photography or anything you self-taught <clears throat> i'm a little bit of both i i think you know better than most having toured with me that i like to spend a lot of my free time watching movies and tv shows i'm a kind of a cinema geek so i've always been a fan of cinema and cinematography mainly jean-claude van damme um, that's you know he's got yeah this guy watches a lot of jean-claude van damme films i have a spreadsheet of 
his spin kicks per movie <laughs> laid out. I think his kickboxer was the most with 17. Wow. Um, I should that. But yeah, yeah I, I, I love movies. And when we were making our documentary for the final Chimera album, Crown, Crown of Phantoms, we had three cameras, but only two dudes. So I picked up a camera and started helping with the, the filming. And I started shooting pictures while I was doing this. It's like 2012. And all my friends uh, that were pros at the time were kind of encouraging me after seeing the work to, hey, you have a good eye. And all the band guys I took pictures for, Emil and Austin and everyone, they were like, man, these are the best pictures of me ever and stuff like that. So I kind of had this right off the rip, people complimenting me on my um, capabilities. And I think you and I have kind of discussed, we go down the YouTube rabbit hole quite a bit and come across some of these uh, entrepreneur types. So like Tim Ferriss, he has a pretty interesting method called the DISS method, D-I-S-S-S, I believe where you're breaking down and you don't really like go after like to try to be the best. Like, uh, you know, my opinion, Stanley Kubrick's the best in photography and filmmaking. And while like, I do love to, it's like the 80, 20 love to emulate him. Yeah. I do love to emulate him. I can also look at someone like Alex Morgan, who's more my age doing commercial photography, working with bands, but doing a lot of stuff with businesses in his hometown. That's something more I can, kind of reach for and like do my own take on something that so I learned quite a bit about business from him and then just develop my own skill through practice and trial and error and um, uh, schooling would be strictly through like online courses creative live I took a bunch of stuff on learning how to edit and, and composition um youtube of course is a great resource and then my friends that are in the industry picking their brain looking at other photographers work and from a critical eye point just like a musician would what i like about photography comparatively speaking to music is i'm able to be more prolific and just really reach out of my quote-unquote core fan base like i said I'll, I'll work with a baby one day and then maybe I'm taking pictures of a plate of ribs the next. Yeah. And, well, well, the one thing, well, the one uh, thing I can relate to that is with me, how, you know, how I got involved with writing and now doing the podcast and the contrast to being in a band is photography. You can do it by yourself. You don't. Right. And there's this piece of kind of agency and freedom that, you know, being in a band when you're literally tied to four or five other people uh, for a decade plus, and all of a sudden, you know, from a creative standpoint, there's not much you can do without getting, um, going through a lot of filters, being a bunch of people in the band, your manager, your label, and then you have something creatively where you are the beginning and the end. And it's a pretty liberating thing. Um, so I, I imagine you, you probably are enjoying some of that as well. Yeah, I love that aspect. And plus, like, I'm, I'm an introvert. So editing photography for me is great. I sit at home, I throw on a pair of shorts, put on fucking Cobra in the background or some kind of awesome movie like that I've seen a million times. Tango and Cash. And I, yeah, exactly. He thinks he's Rambo. Rambo uh, is a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so it's fun. I work from home a lot. And then too, with websites is the same thing, you know, it's working from home and, and being on a computer. And a lot of times I'll work with some, some friends to help me on the projects that they're, they're kind of working with me, not like a band where we're like arguing over creative things like, Oh, I want this riff here. You know, um, it's more like, Hey, edit this, this way, please for me really fast. Yeah, sure. No problem, buddy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like one of those situations that I have a really good friend in England named Simon. Uh, he, uh, he's kind of been my partner with a lot of web stuff and helps, helps do a lot of the hard, the heavy lifting and I'm more of the like salt bay with it. Like, eh, do that right there and sprinkle that on. <laughs> right on, man. Well, it's, listen, Fun man. Time. Well, it's. One thing I can say is someone who's known you for, for a long time and kind of, uh, you know, I've seen your personality change a lot and like open up and become, you know, a guy who is, I would describe as a pretty dark guy, you know, 10 plus years ago to someone who's, you know, seems to be a lot more kind of like spiritually aware and um, optimistic and, you know, it's, it's, you know, just as a friend, it's, it's been, you know, even though, you know, we don't talk to each other all the time, but when I look at with old friends and you can go whatever, 20 years without seeing each other and you just pick up where you left off. But, you know, it's, it, I'm definitely, you know, it, it's just nice to see someone evolve in a, in a, in a positive way and kind of, you know, discover different parts of themselves, you know, so I'm definitely, I'm happy for you. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you, man. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, really thankful that you decided to do this, you know. I appreciate it. And yeah, I, I enjoy our friendship. We, we've, uh, we've had a very long one. And like you said, you can go talking, but it's not like I don't see what you're up to almost every day on Twitter, reading your articles. I think that's really cool. I love that you did the podcast thing. I've been kind of teetering on it for two, three years now. Like, do I want to do one? And like, I always like, is it played out by this point? But man, I still listen to podcasts all the time. So uh, you never know. You might see me throw my hat in the ring. Mark Hunter, the ex-lead singer from the band Chimera. Gotta give him all the thanks in the world. I, I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, I was so happy he, I just thought he, you know, he opened up about a lot of stuff that, you know, maybe a lot of people wouldn't really have the balls to to come forward with, you know. So, uh, I, you know, I really hope you guys enjoyed that. That little clip I played was from a song called uh, Save Yourself from the self-titled Camira release. I'm sure if you listen to this, you're probably a fan of the band. So I figured I'd just get me a little clip because I love when that when that verse kicks in and man, damn man, feeling that, miss that stuff. Um, but anyway, thank you guys for checking out the show. Actually, before I go, I'm just gonna plug another Jabberjaw Media show. Uh, this one is called Manage Mental, 
and it actually the hosts are Mr. Mike Mowry, who is a manager for Outer Loop Management, works with bands like Periphery and Darkest Hour, and then the other host is Blasco, uh, he's who's a musician who plays with bands like Ozzy Osbourne and Zach Wild and Rob Zombie, but he's also a manager of bands like Black Label or uh, Black Label Society as well, and as well as uh, Blackville Bride. So many blacks <laughs> gets all mumbly jumbly. But anyway, uh, they do a weekly show, and it's cool because it's little little hit jobs. It's only about thirty to forty minutes, and they'll discuss an article or one subject matter relating to the music industry, and then give their opinion on it. So one week they'll talk about merchandise or one week they'll talk about a band getting a lawyer uh but i've been checking it out every week and it's even for someone like me who's been doing this forever it's always great to keep educating yourself because i have a new band and i'm involved in underground music you know you cannot hang your hat on what you were doing you got it's all about what you're doing now and because the industry changes so much it's always always helpful to keep filling that brain with knowledge so great show managemental with the uh, jabberjaw media podcast network check it out and i'll probably keep doing that i'll check out a different jabberjaw show uh every other episode or so and give you guys a recommendation and tell you about it so you can check it out anyway thank you guys for listening mamba out Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious... Join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast.